episode three of The Homeroom. Much like uh, Richard and Judy from this morning, Aaron and myself had to come down from Manchester to London in order to secure our guests for today's show. Uh, we're going to be looking at football and the changing media landscape and today I'm joined by three guys who are experts in their various fields. Uh, we've got Greg Johnson who is a northerner living in London and describes himself as a social media dog's body during the day. <laughs> But by night, he's one of the editors of the False Nine Football Blog, where he covers all aspects of the game, from fan ownership to football history. Greg's Man City supporting dad made the mistake of taking him to Old Trafford as a young boy, and the impressionable Greg became a United fan from there on. Apparently, Greg lives nearby to the uh, Emirates Stadium and can hear all the goings-on from the comfort of his toilet. It doesn't sound as bad as that, but yeah, you know, keep, keep the door open, you can pretty much have match commentary from the stadium, it's alright. Also with us is Moz D, who is the former managing editor of BBC Radio 5 Live and programme director of TalkSport. Moz oversaw the restructure of TalkSport to become a sports-only radio station and grew its audience to more than 3 million. His signs include Stan Collymore, Collymore even. Keys and Gray, and uh, my personal favourite football pundit, Darren Goff. Moz is still working in sport and has recently been working with Real Madrid, having set up Contented Digital Media, a company which creates original sport content. And last but not least is uh, Tony Evans, who is another northerner exiled in the capital. Um, according to the internet, the source of all true rumours, uh, Tony played trombone and trumpet for the farm in the 80s. Yeah, that's true. And uh, before embarking on his career in journalism, or uh, well, I believe he started in Southern California, is that true? Yeah, it is, yeah. I started for a preposterously named paper called the San Gabriel Valley Tribune. <laughs> and then the next paper I worked for was even more preposterous, the Inland Valley Daily Bulls. So is it true that you, your first <coughs> job was writing uh, about American football? Though? First job in sport, yeah. I yeah. was doing uh, American football high school match reports for the LA Times in Orange County. Well, when he's not getting insulted on Twitter, Tony <laughs> is the chief football writer at the Times newspaper. And uh, if you follow him on Twitter, you'll know he's a big Liverpool fan. However, admitted only last night that he's got a tattoo of Bobby Charlton's comb over on his backside. <laughs> I was accused of being a Man United fan. I, what, what gets me about Twitter is people come on on Twitter and they abuse you. Mm. And they haven't done the slightest amount of research. You know, it's a, it was a Man City fan who said... Uh, Essentially, um, I'd written a column praising the way City have restructured and the way they behaved this summer. Hmm. And um, I said, oh, you're writing positive things about City now that Ferguson's retired? Oh, yeah, I always wrote positive things about Ferguson. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's an interesting uh, one to mention there because I think, you know, Twitter, you know, has obviously seen a, a, a big change in the way that football and the media work together. But, you know, in your in your various opinions, what would you say? Uh, the biggest change has been in the in the way the two function. You know, as as long as you know we've been able to string a couple of words together, we've had an opinion on everything. The difference now in this day and age is we um, all have the ability to publish our opinion. How informed that opinion is is a matter of opinion, so to speak. Um, I think Twitter and and the, the social media has exploded. It's here to stay. It's a fantastic tool. It's a great source of information. I follow Tony. I follow a lot of lads. I get a laugh out of it. Um, I use it as a news feed very often, actually. You know, it alerts me to all sorts of stuff that's going on or things that are, that are taking place in and around the world of sport and elsewhere. But it can also be the home of the sad, the mad, and the very lonely. Um, and I suppose that's just part and parcel of the um, Pandora's box that we've opened with it. We've got to find a way of, of dealing with it. I mean, I think, I think the thing that we've got to educate people on is, and you said it in your opening, it is not the source of truth. It is the source of people's opinion on things that are going on. Very often, their immediate reaction. 
I think basic old-fashioned media hasn't changed. I think we still need good journos like Tony and his team and what happens in traditional media to give us context, to give us an educated view, pay people to go out and actually gather the facts so we can have an informed opinion as opposed to just a, you know, a straightforward immediate reaction. The drunk at the bar is going to call <laughs> yeah, that's, exactly, that's yeah. And that's the poor side. But the positive side is good. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even use a website as, as my main news feed anymore. As Moss said, I, I don't really have a site that I, I go to every day. It's Twitter all day, every day, whatever anyone's retweeted. There's no, I don't no longer go to The Guardian or like a Red Cafe or The Times. I, I, go, to, I go to Twitter and see what it throws up, really. Um, and I, I think you're completely right about the need for an informed um, and journalist to actually put the hours in and do the, the high skill work, getting the, um, the pieces out. But I think outside of football, just in general, people seem to be more suspicious of the judicial media outlets these days. There just um, seems to be a lot more um, focus on personal experiences rather than, than, than what people have been told. Um, and I think that's good in many ways, um, but it can be quite damaging when people don't value the, the value of mm. newspapers and stuff. I think one of the things is people have got no sense of where the internet might take us, and we're still in the early days. So we have this explosion of what people are calling citizen journalism, mm. and that's like your first-person experience. But the reality of it is often it, it's a very narrow view and it's not very informed. Mm. And I think what will happen over the next five years, everyone's writing blogs at the moment, it's just their own opinions. There'll be a realisation that you need a gold standard of knowledge and awareness. And believe it or not, in traditional journalism, there is that. You phone up managers, you talk to players, you know, you talk to agents, you talk to chief executives. And we don't say these things or write these things without that sort of background. Mm. And, and what most people do on Twitter, and I think there'll be, there'll be a realisation, everyone assumes journalists know nothing, and, but the people will start to realise, they'll see all of these blogs, there's very few of them. And I think also what will rise to the top is the people who are writing blogs who actually do have that gold standard of knowledge because around every club there are people who are not traditional journalists but do know stuff. Yeah. Mm. So it has, you know, not just referring to Twitter, but hasn't new media affected um, the way that you report or engage with, with clubs? Because you mentioned there, you know, phoning up chief execs and that type of thing. Does that still happen or are people more guarded now in like this newer age? No, I, I mean, it, for me, it's the same as normal. I mean, the, the barriers between uh, football journalists and people within football have been growing for the past you know, two, three decades. But still, if you work hard enough, you can get to know people. And the, what you've got to do is build trust and build relationships, and people will tell you things. So it doesn't change that. I mean, in, in fact, if anything, there's a couple of figures in football who told me they quite enjoy my lunacy on Twitter. <laughs> and, um, and Greg, is, you know, as, a, as a blog writer, do, do you find that you get any, um, any feedback from clubs or do you even try and contact clubs the way that Tony might or are you just literally canvassing your own opinion? How, can you just talk about I mean, it, we, we do try and get access, um, but obviously because we are just a blog, we're just part of that kind of, kind of malaise online. Um, we don't have the contacts that, that newspapers and other like, established um, sites and, and, and organisations do. So obviously that, a lot of doors aren't open to what we do. Um, but at the same time, I think a lot of bloggers are, are blogging to try and get that gold standard and try and get promoted to the kind of the professional ranks. Um, I mean, I, I, that's definitely why we do it. Um, so I guess it's all part of the putting the footwork in and putting the work in to get those contacts and do the networking that you need to do. Um, but at the same time, we, we, we get a lot of kind of more left field offers. Um, like I wrote some, some silly kind of fictional piece based on Gazprom in 1984 um, last season and their PR team got in touch with us saying, do you want to come and have a tour of our facilities? And it's not really, it's in the Ukraine. I'll, I'll probably stay here. <laughs> thanks. But, um, yeah, was, that was quite fun. Um, but I think that's the main, main thing with blogging. It's, you, you just have a bit more... I don't know, flex flexibility, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but because you, you, you're smaller, you're a bit more agile, you can cover lots of yeah. things. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, what we're saying is the distribution of views. And I think Tony's absolutely right. I mean, this, we act and we behave almost as if this stuff's been around forever. Um, I'm old enough, certainly old enough and ugly enough, to remember a time when, <clears throat> you know, we didn't have phones in everybody's house. We only had three channels. Um, and that the internet was not even discussed or thought of. And despite the, the way I look, this is an ancient history. This is a very, very short period of time we're talking about, decades. Yeah. 
in which the whole world has been turned upside down in, in, in the way that we communicate with each other. And unlike every other stage of evolution, there's a learning process that occurs. And, and I think Tony's right. We're going through that learning period. I think we have to help people more understand what they're getting involved with and how they're reacting. Because there's some very serious stuff that has occurred as a result of misuse of, of the internet, misuse of social platforms, etc. But they're not going anywhere. You're not going to ban the internet. You're not going to ban Twitter. You're not going to disrupt these social platforms. We just have to become more knowledgeable about how we use them and more um, aware of the pitfalls that exist within them. Yeah, and I think what's interesting, certainly if you know, we go back to football, is that football hasn't embraced it well enough yet. Interestingly enough, Liverpool, who I'm critical of on so many levels, have been quite good in this way. There's a Liverpool website called the Anfield Wrap, mm. and so they, they had access to Brendan Rodgers, an interview with him in, in Australia. Uh, Liverpool invites all the big blogging sites uh, down to, you know, to see the manager on Fridays and things like that. And they've realised... I mean, what football clubs grew out of communities. They grew out of churches. They grew out of Manchester United, the Railway Workers hmm. Union. And they grew out of that. And they've kind of, in the modern days, they've lost a sense of community. And bizarrely, the internet can give yeah. it back. You, you, get, you, you make these people who are bloggers and who are writing on their own, writing about the club, and feel the club doesn't want them, doesn't want to know them. You bring them in, and the sense of community builds, because everyone who logs onto those blogs... You can touch people, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, contented what we do. One of the things that we do is talk to football clubs, rights holders and sports individuals about social media and how they use it. And you talk to some clubs, they're absolutely bloody terrified of the whole thing because they think, I'll just get a load of abuse and it'll be terrible people swear at me. Say, so, yeah, they will. That's what will happen because you open that door. But also if you, you embrace it and you use it the right way, yeah, you can talk to a whole fan base you know, you're talking about the bigger clubs particularly, who will never afford to be able to, to get in through those hallowed gates and watch the matches as regularly as they'd like. You're talking to people in Ghana, mm. all right, I mean, where I've come back from recently, and they are football mad and Premier League mad. You know, you're as likely to see a Liverpool shirt there as you are, you know, on the streets here in London. I mean, it's, it's quite incredible the love they have for these, and this horrible word, brands. But they can feel part of the community because they log on, they can read stuff, they can interact, they can talk to other fans, they're part of the issues. And if clubs do it right, they should, they should embrace it. They really should embrace it. And, and I think one of the things that people don't understand, in the rush to globalisation, uh, football's turned a little bit into a pop business you know, you're getting people who've got no emotional ties, no physical ties to the club, becoming fans. And what you risk is the fear of when the, your club becomes less successful, like a band doesn't have a few number ones, they move on to the next one. But with this social media, you can actually build ties. You can give people a sense that they matter to the club and they've got a connection. And I think it's the way forward, personally. You can, you can pervert that a little bit, though. Um, I mean, you see a lot of clubs like United, they had a... a 11 million subscribers to their club database, um, which is on par with like the Boots and Tesco's loyalty points. And they're saying they can actually make money out of that more than many of their other commercial ventures. And now you've got Real Madrid saying they're going to put Bundesliga highlights on their channel for free and put it online. Um, that might be the next step in a way. Clubs trying to maybe go over the heads of, of traditional media organisations and trying to bring it all in-house. So then, then maybe will they control the editorial angle on that as well? Or... That's, that's really interesting. It's been talked about for a long time, that. I remember chatting to uh, the doyen of the media industry, somebody, of course, who's gone on to have a brilliant business career in business. His name's Kelvin McKenzie. And um, he said to me once, um, you know what, son, the thing to buy is uh, MUTV because it'll be a massive success. It'll go on to do X, Y, and Z. It hasn't really. Um, and I think... That idea, that notion, whilst not being new, it's a logical one. But mm. somehow, what football fans want, what the football consumer wants, is um, context again. So with BT, with Sky, with a newspaper brand, with Talk Sport, with Five Live, they buy the rights, they aggregate them, and they have a context within which this is played. If you're sort of MUTV and all your matches are there, then it's Pravda, isn't it? Or if it's mm. LTV or whoever it is, you need a context within which this content is distributed because I think that's what football fans want. Yeah. And they and see that's, through it. That's what they do. They're missing the point as much as they missed the point in the early 80s. You know when like, people like Ken Bates said, don't want football on television. <laughs> no one will come through the gates. You're missing the point. 
set up MUTV, we can control the media. You're missing the point. People will lose interest. Actually, what the, what the more interest is, is in the stuff the clubs don't want them to know. Dead right, absolutely. It's always been the case. So, football fans, um, sports fans are a canny lot at the end of the day. Mm. Um, it's something that irritates me. Um, Fully enough, I was having this uh, discussion last night with um, um, somebody from a completely different genre talking about art, etc. And um, I'm not scoffing, but sort of laughing in a sort of um, an ignorance about, about f football fans. If you look at football fans, they probably read more. Right, than anyone else. Right? They read newspapers, they're scouring the internet, that's why you've got so many bloggers, that's why you've got so much informed debate, because people go out and they do their research. They have a broad range of interests, generally. Our football fans tend to be politically more active than um, other ranges or other areas of the, uh, of the demographic in the UK, and they get, you know, they get a bad, um, I think, a bad rap for all that, and, and, and they get lots of cliches said and written about them. Um, but I think that, that we're, what we're saying here is that because of that, they will see through a Pravda-like or a, a very sanitised version of events. You know, you're far rather containing a debate about the true matters than you are trying to publish sort of a, a sanitised version of what you want people to believe. I think the, uh, the, the point you made, Tony, about... You know, the, the the internet or this explosion online is, you know, might actually bring, you know, communities back to, to clubs as an interesting one because, you know, there's a lot of foreign ownership and, um, you know, I think in, you could argue that the internet in many ways makes makes a club very disparate because everyone's got an opinion and they can publish it, publish it you know, instantly. So I think, you know, th that would be an interesting one to look at more in terms of how, how you think communities can come back to clubs because you know we've seen recently with clubs changing names and losing the grounds it's you know it's a very emotional topic really well you didn't mention it but i'm a coventry city fan you know that's where i was brought up that's where i, I watched my football as a, as a as a kid um i haven't lived in, in in coventry for years but you can't change your family and and what's happened at that football club's an absolute disgrace it's because you're talking about identity yeah there's not a lot goes on in coventry Right, it's it can have it's had its issues across the years. It's got good people living in there, but life is hard. And what you find is that football clubs can give um, can give people a little bit of solace. It's something to gather around. It's something to unite around, etc. Um, and for that club to now, you know, to go down the road to play at Northamptons, how do we arrive at that? Having won the cup in nineteen eighty seven. I know it's a mere little pyrrhic victory for us, but it's the only thing we can celebrate. And you remember the joy it brought to the city at that time. But that is going to increase further and further. I think we're going to see a lot of clubs like that struggle, lose their grounds, and, and um, have, have, have difficult problems operationally. But it's amazing what's happened at Cov City. And you can replicate that. I'm sure you'll agree with lots of other clubs. Mm. Well, we're going to lose this. How it's mobilised itself online, how the fan base, which isn't as big as a mighty Liverpool or Arsenal or whatever, but across the world has... Um, mobilised itself via the, the internet, where you're reading where people are joining up, where they're organising demonstrations, where they're organising petitions, where they're informing each other of what is going on, what the inside track might be. Mm. Because in scenarios like this, you don't get a lot of clear information from a football club or authorities. I mean, you go back to, to, to Liverpool and you're letting Hicks, the internet terrorists. And you mean, I think if you take it even further, non-league football and, and fan-owned clubs coming right from the bottom of the divisions and trying to get back to maybe clubs that were they feel like they've been hijacked by their owners. The internet's amazing for that. You can get them a presence that can go all around the country, maybe even further afield. Um, and I mean, back home, 1874 Northwich are a non-league club um, who are now fan-owned, and they're a splinter club from Norwich Victoria who've been going through a lot of lot of problems recently. Um, and I, I think it's amazing how so much of that club's identity and the crest and the colours they were going to like, make this, the, the strip, um, it was all decided on a Facebook group, pretty much, and like a democratic process with... Um, kind of town hall meetings um, patched between it. And I think that's a really interesting and, and exciting way football could be going. Yeah, and, and, and that's the other thing, that, you know, if we go back to Twitter, is it allows you things to come up under your nose that you wouldn't necessarily have noticed. You know, so people tweet me all the time what's going on at their clubs and, 
you know, I'm like a gas when I read it. Yeah. And, you know, then, then you're interested. And it's a way that, you know, you, you won't always get it in the traditional media, but at least you alert them to it so that, you know, there's the possibility. So, I mean, that's the, the great thing about it. And it, it does show the strength of communities around football clubs. So do you think that, you know, most of the, the Premier League clubs anyway have a social media manager or someone who, you know, pushes content out that they want people to, to read or engage with, but... Are you saying that clubs should be harnessing the feedback more and, and using it to to support the community or to not necessarily drive another agenda, but to give something back or at least show they are? And that gradually, that gradually, I think, is becoming the case, bit by bit. So the education, we keep coming back to it, we keep coming back to evolution. And there, there has been, it depends what press office you deal with, of course, mm -hmm. and who you are particularly. And some press offices in the Premier League are better than others in terms of access and how they react to the media. I think there was an old-fashioned view, still remains in some places, where you know the first thing that will come is no. Everything's a no. No. Because it's easy to say no and block everything off, and we've all experienced that as, as journalists, whether in print or broadcast. But you can't say no now. You, know, you cannot contain it. It is everywhere. It's, you know, people are talking about a particular topic. They're talking about a particular rumour. They think you have to address it. You have as a football club, as a brand, as a, you know, you guys at Umbro, whoever, whoever we are, you have to embrace that debate and that discussion. If you're clever about it, you can make a virtue of it by facilitating it and giving it the platform and giving it a voice. Because all of a sudden you're seen as, as being open, you're, being, um, you're defending that free speech. Um, I think it, it's got a lot of positive attributes. One of the things that, that happens an awful lot is they employ people in these jobs, new media jobs, who don't understand the soul of the club. Yeah. And that's, that's where you know, the, the, the comeuppance comes. But, I mean, football clubs should, in general, stop being so defensive. Because uh, the, the lunacy of clubs, if I just tell a little anecdote, I used to work, work for Chelsea well, more than 15 years ago, and Ken Bates used to say all the time, that you know, he'd never have a press officer you know, because he didn't need a press officer. He didn't want to talk to the press. He wouldn't talk to the press. If he did, he'd do it on his terms. Anyway, someone phones him up one day. He picks up the phone and he says, you know, what, what do you think? You know, Matthew Herden had just died. He said, you know, what, what do you think of Matthew Herden died? And he said something to the effect that I'm glad. And the negative publicity was massive, mm -hmm. not just for him, but for Chelsea. And, you know, and, and as I remember saying, that's why you should have a, a buffer between you and, you know, someone who can actually make sane judgments on this. But in the old days, they didn't do things like that. You know, and, um, and you know, and Ken was the classic wild card. He'd go off on one. And it, it's, you know, so the, the, obviously you've got to get the right balance if you're any sort of business. You know, you, you can't tell the exact truth and you can't say exactly how you feel. But you need also to communicate and have... Uh, a sort of a logical way of doing it and some clubs still don't I think it's about um, and I use this term um, and I know it's not a favourite term amongst football fans but you know brand is what the, or what the soul of a club is mm. and if everyone understands what the mentality is or what the ethos is of a particular badge of a particular um, club and somebody steps over the mark then, then everyone's in agreement do you know what I mean we understand what that's about and everyone gets it you know, and I think if, but you've got to communicate first. You've got to tell people what that message is. You've got to tell people what the philosophy of that football club is. You've got to tell people what that, you know, um, what the expectations are on and off the pitch of the fans, of the players, of everyone who's involved with that football club. If you don't communicate that, mm. then, you know, people are sort of fishing around blind, aren't they? It'd be interesting to see what happens with the canoe as well, again, to see if that flares up this season. Because um, yeah. it's definitely going to kind of colour people's opinions of Sunderland. Mm. And how the club deals with that. Because, I mean, they start off saying, well, we don't think he's ever said anything about fascism. And it turned out they just mm. hadn't done their research. Um, so if he kind of loses it a bit and um, says something... Again, he's a wild card like Bates, in a way. That, that, that wasn't the fascist salute. It was his tribute to the Arsenal offside. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, I guess that's something that, that Twitter is good for, though, kind of judging the water and, and seeing where people are at on things on a court, more kind of like um, large... Like, if, if it trends, like, like Paul de Canio... I don't know, Sparta or something like that, kind of bring it back to those kind of principles of, of hard work. and. Well, I think that's, that's where that balance lies, isn't it, that we, we talked about earlier on. I mean, I don't think... I certainly don't expect, expect um, football clubs and football players, I in fact expect most human beings to have some kind of moral compass and behave in a certain way to each other. Even in football? Or? Even in football, <laughs> you know. I think um, 
but you know there are there are balances and checks within that mm. you know in a civil society if one has been found guilty of a particular crime and has served the penalty then you've served the penalty and you kick on is you know but there are certain crimes i think you were going to talk about the jack sullivan etc the scenario there and, and other players have gone committed heinous crimes they've never recovered but I would suggest that you never recover in civil society, let alone in football. You know, there's some mm, crimes that yeah. are so um, immense that people just can't um, just can't handle that in terms yeah. of sort of letting you play on and forgiving it. A, a, another point we wanted to, to raise was the idea of you know commercialism dictating editorial or at least driving it. So in the sense of sponsorships um in terms of access so it's not necessarily based around a news agenda it's it's based around a sponsor's agenda or a financial agenda what's your experiences of that well i mean it's it's become increasingly the only way to get interviews you know you you, you put a picture of the player in the sponsor's clothes and a little tagline at the end you know he's an ambassador for i don't know Umbro, um, it's, uh, so yeah, but I, I don't see that compromises too much. I think what is a bigger threat, and you see it in some papers, um, is is uh, advertorial, and where it's not clearly marked as advertorial, so it's paid for content, and so so I think that's a bigger threat. But I, I think again, it's, it's a period of um, the media thrashing round because they don't understand the forces of the future. And I think what, what, what's happened is a lot of uh, newspapers have invested too much money on, on the websites and their online um, uh, pr productions, and they've not found a way to generate any income for, for it. I think we'll see increasingly people go behind paywalls, and I think then there'll be less of a, once a, once a, a, a way of operating is established, there'll be less of that advertorial. And I say, the main thing is, the, the interviews through sponsors. I don't see that really hurts us. You know, it's a, I mean, we, we don't do copy approval. Some papers do. I, I, I wouldn't, you know, it's, we don't do it as a point of philosophy. Um, so, you know, we don't do headline approval. So it doesn't really affect us. If they ask for it, we just say, well, we can't do it. I mean, no, well, broadcast PR, PR has been around for a long time. Again, it's, it's not nothing, nothing new necessarily. And I think as long as you're clear, um, as a as a journalist or whatever going into that type of scenario what it is what you're going to get for it generally very little to be honest you might get the odd line now and again mm. that you can stick out but very rarely because there's generally about three or four people hobbling around making sure that that doesn't happen um but more importantly and this is what tony's alluded to more importantly that the consumer understands what it is i think that's where it can get a slightly groggy area where you're listening to an interview maybe on a radio station or you're watching it on tv or you're reading it in the newspaper is that that people that are, are consuming that understand where that story's come from um and that's why it's not as maybe as cutting edge as it might be because actually it's a pr opportunity for the, not the player necessarily but for the brand yeah i'll give you an example from today uh, as a phone call from a pr agency you had uh, a liverpool player available this week and he said oh but can you submit to us in advance any questions you can ask on Suarez? <laughs> you can see the sensitivities there. And you know what? Here's the reality. Even if you submit them, when you get in there, you'll ask the ones you want. Yeah. And un until they throw you out with your arm up your back. <laughs> you keep <laughs> checking. That's yeah, right. you know and that's always, you say, what you do, you save, you save your nuclear questions till the end. You get all the nice stuff done. And then, then you ask the question they don't want to answer. And then, then you, you ask it again. And as I say, sometimes it works. Sometimes they throw you out. But sometimes you get a line. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's you know what Tony said. It's good old-fashioned journalism and a, a few tricks that have been built over years of experience about getting a line out. And even in a in a sanitised clinical PR environment, it can still happen. Yeah, but I mean, I guess that's the point. Really, does it still happen? Can it still happen? And will it? Oh yeah, yeah, it will. You know, all the time, and it, it's a uh, you know, I, I, I don't think people realise, and Mosel testified to this, actually how skilled some of the reporters out there are in in getting information out of people. Mm. It's a uh, you know, it is an art form, and sometimes you know, it's 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 an art, it's a dark art, <laughs> you know, <it's>, uh, <laughs> but like it's um, they're very good at it. Yeah, yeah, and it, uh, different ways of approaching it. Some people approach it John Humphrey styley 
which is basically, you know, and people know what the game is before they sit in front of him. They know what the game is. So people buy into the fact that they're going to get interrogated very aggressively and they train themselves to, to counter that as best they can. And sometimes that works. Actually, I think that's working less and less for him, to be mm. honest, mm. because people Definitely. are so... Um, Jeremy, you know, the Paxman style of interviewing... Uh, how do we get onto this? I've no idea. <laughs> but a Paxman uh, style of interview, people have trained themselves now yeah. to sort of just ignore the question and move on and let him shout a lot. The real great reporters that I've seen, both in print, I've been very lucky. Um, I've sat next to and been around some great print reporters and some great broadcasters. It's very often they're very, how are you, mate? You all right? Very um, hospitable, very friendly. Put the host, uh, put the, the subject at ease completely. Probably start by talking about anything but football, you know. That could be music, latest film release, anything like that. Just drawing. It might sound simple, but it's not. Keeping somebody's attention and then just gradually open up with some crap. And all of a sudden, the respondent starts talking in a way that... Because we're talking now, and this is all very good, because we're having a chat. All that's missing is a pint, really. We're having a chat. And that's, <laughs> you know, you did. But that's the way it should work. That's the way good radio... <laughs> But that's the way it should work. Very often when, um, and I say this, when you're dealing with footballers, you're dealing with them, they're not broadcasters. You stick a camera or a microphone, they clam up. They yeah. become very difficult to approach because they think, well, you know, if I watch myself, the, the better way of approaching these things is recording, putting a and not asking questions, just make, make talking. Like yeah. You know, it's a, when people like you, they tell you things. It's amazing. You know, so I mean, you know, what you want to do is, I mean, I, ideally, even be, you know, sort of, if you can form a relationship with them, go out for a drink with them, you know, form trust, you know, and then, you know, even in, in stylized interview settings, like Mon says, be friendly, be engaged, and have a laugh. And then, you know, it's a, before you know, you've bushwhacked them, boom. <laughs> Unless you're Steve Keen, then you wake up next time in the bar with the camera on you and you tell them everyone near, um, uh, yeah. you bought Phil Jones, was it? I can't remember. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> But I mean, that, I guess that's you know the the advantages and disadvantages is because I you know I, th I think that was a a bit naughty what happened to him there because yeah. he obviously let his guard down and, and caught out. But he maybe yeah. deserved to get caught out on it though because he was coming out with some pretty pretty perhaps, stuff. perhaps. But I think um, you know the the idea of you know it being a media interview can unnerve some players. So you know if the tape recorder goes down or the camera gets turned on. That's when people clam up, but you know, are you are you finding that there's more, you know, in your experience, you know, more um, people more reserved or players are more reserved because there's more people around them. Oh yeah, mm. I mean, if you're talking about a top Premier League player now, they'll have a massive entourage. I mean, people talk about the agent. Very often, some of these players have got two or three agents yeah. which operate in different fields of, you know, they'll have a commercial agent, they'll have an agent that does, does their football deals in terms of transfers, they'll have another agent that's dealing with their, dealing with their image rights in another area. So there are a lot of uh, vested interests now in and around a, a football player. And let's face it, they're a football player, you know, but probably left school at a very early age. They played football all their lives. They're not trained or skilled in these various areas. So you have a lot of people protecting them. So that sort of ability to sit down and uh, have a bit of dinner with somebody, have a bit of crack, get to know them as a person. Because actually, the truth of it is, good journos, we were having a laugh about bushwhacking people or, or, or leading people into scenarios. Actually, good journalists don't do that. Because mm. yeah, part of building up the relationship is trust. Mm. And the differential for, for sports journalists, particularly as opposed to showbiz news journalists, and this is very often where that tension arises in every newsroom, is with people breaking a story about somebody being pissed on a, on a casino floor. Yeah. It's not necessarily the route for a sports journalist yeah. who's built a lot of trust up with an individual. And it's after a good sports story mm. and, and the ability to have, be an ear for and have the ear of that player in the future. It's a sort of a different thing, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is, it's, it's, it's all about trust. And what you, what you want to do is build contacts. You want to create them and, and keep them going over years. I mean, sometimes you have to do stories. And, you know, the, the stories of the sort where, you know, you'll get a text from a player involved saying, I'm never speaking to you again. And you're like, well, you know, it, it, you know your personal integrity means you have to do it. Uh, you know, so you don't want to be a traitor to journalism, but you know they're very rare those situations. Most of the time, you know, it's um, it, it, there's no need for it. And it, in my experience, despite what people say about professional footballers, most of them 
uh, when you get through that veneer, are just normal fellas, and and the majority of them are quite bright and are interested in in talking about other things mm. other than football. And you know, they're, they're, <coughs> they're a better group of people than perhaps the public perceived them as. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point actually, because with the the sort of um, anodyne lines of you know all credit to the lads and I'm delighted to be here etc etc the media trained answers you don't get the the personality of of the player of the person um, and I think that in recent years anyway my my opinion certainly is that when there is a personality it's it's hammed up so much that it becomes a caricature of some sort absolutely so you know maybe Balotelli being an example of that so would you say that in some quarters, players aren't necessarily prevented from having a personality, but when they do have one, some media take it to the nth degree. I see it. Again, I said there's lots and lots of vested interest in and around a top player these days. So, um, And they'll, they'll have all sorts of incentives to want that player appear in a certain light or in a certain way um, to suit a certain brand. Was, you know, listen... I mean, for ordinary people, looking at lads that are on 120, 160,000 quid a week, there's very little sympathy going to come out of anywhere. But, I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough, I know Tony has, to, to spend time with some very top players. And actually, you hear the stories about going on the piss and, you know, burning 50-pound notes and all that. Those are very, very rare occurrences and extremely bad behaviour. Most of the time, they go to training, they go home, and they stay home. You know, they're a bit dull. It's a bit dull. It's all, and there's, there's sort of a sadness is too strong a word, but it can be quite lonely, and it can be quite sterile. You know, and, they're not. And, and another anecdote about this: when when, the, when there were lots of rumours about Stephen Gerrard and you know sort of his lifestyle, which you know were, were not remotely true, a lot of people picked up on it. And I was having a drink with a news reporter from a, a, a red top. Uh, wasn't the sun, but another red top, and he said to me, "Star, you know, he says, we've had a, we've 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 had a, someone outside his house every night for the past six months, and he goes home every night." And I'm like, "Why didn't you just ask me?" You know, the the, the desire for scandal is massive, mm. and you know, and, and these rumours circulate again. One of the negative things of Twitter and the internet: these rumours circulate about players' lifestyles, and like they're just not true in most most cases. Mm. A lot of them have got a, a pretty horrible uh, backstory to it because there used to be this horrible um, rumours about Saul Campbell and Lennox Lewis and, and stuff and you can just you can see where that's come from it's from a very bigoted kind of background of people trying to make things up and trying to just mm. stir something that, that sh- you know mm. yeah so but for some you know for those negatives is you know social media and, and Twitter a great platform for players to, to show their personality yeah it can be I mean what another thing one other thing I said our company does run so Michael Essien, for instance, who is probably one of the you're listening to this, Michael, the dullest people you'll ever meet, <laughs> is uh, no, he's, he's a lovely fella, um, and you know, like many other top players, he goes to his training, he's passionate about his football, he goes home to his family, he drinks a lot of water, they sleep an awful lot, um, eat some good food, and that really they love a good conversation, love watching the telly, love watching the movies, like every other human being. They, that is it. He wouldn't go on Twitter. And so, you know, went round to his house, we're having a chat, and it's saying, well, we, we went on Twitter very sort of cautiously, and we, we sort of not run it for him because he does it all himself. So everything that he tweets is very genuine. That's the other thing that people make mistakes with mm. because you can tell straight yeah. away if somebody else is writing but, it. But there was a sort of advert for the uh, a Barcelona player wanted someone to run a social media, um, uh, 50 grand a year, and it's like, do it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Save a few more. <laughs> I mean, we don't. It's not about taking. We don't take money off um, Essien at all for that in, that. in that area, it's not about that. It's about him being able to communicate with a wider group of people about all sorts of things that he's interested in. I tell you, the thing he wants to communi- about, communicate about is his foundation in Ghana, mm. which is about bringing clean running water to the community that he left to become a multi-million-pound footballer. Um, you know, things that we don't understand. I think there's a real... A lot of these players do an awful lot for their communities, uh, whether that be back in Africa or back of other parts of the planet, but also here in the UK. You know, the amount of players that work for hospices. Um, there's never TV cameras or, mm. or, or stuff clicking around them when that, all that happens. Um, there is an awful lot of good done by football players that does go unnoticed because it's not really 
celebrity news or salacious enough, really, for people to mm. pick up on. But in a way, that's nice, because I think if the cameras were there, it would take something away from it. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, all I'm saying is it's very quiet, it's yeah. understated, yeah. so what's very, what becomes what's very prominent is the problems, the issues are what we perceive to be what's wrong with footballers at top level mm. as opposed to them being human beings. Well, I, I, do, I do wonder if, when we said personality, if, if, we, if we aren't looking for the caricature to begin with, because you've, you've got players like um, Jamie Carragher, uh, Robin Van Persie, um, who could, they do speak very eloquently to the press, um, mm. and they try to go quite deep on football issues. Um, and they don't seem to get the same kind of um, mickey-taking as, say, say Balotelli did, um, cause, probably because they don't give as much to caricature. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that's media training yeah. or it, whether they're just no, a bit I more genuine. That's, or That's just them as people. I think Balotelli's just a, a daft lad. Yeah, he? yeah. You know, well, he's the extreme end of the, what, the kind of thing, isn't he? What's interesting in the modern world is, like, and especially, and I think it's a function of money, is that like everyone thinks footballers are raging lunatics are up to all kinds of house every night and they go back and they lionise the players of the 60s and 70s, 80s. They were way worse. <laughs> <laughs> I just finished a book about the 1984, uh, the 83-84 Liverpool team. They're things they got up to. I mean, 10 days before the European Cup final, when they, they went to Israel on a warm weather training break and, um, and got into a massive fight. Between themselves, <laughs> and um, you know, it's like they—they're they, complete not loons, and they, they're having a great time. The modern player is restrained by comparison with them, and you know, it's a, I, I, I say, I, you know, a part of me, a lot of me, likes the old ways better, but modern players, a lot of them, live very, very restrained lifestyles. Yeah, Nottingham Forest was it the first uh, European Cup final they went to. I think it was the first. This is documented, so you know, you'll know this. Yeah. They got taken to a brothel the night before. It was Amsterdam. Yeah. They got taken to a brothel the night before. And it was all paid for. Taylor was there paying for it. And it's like, yeah, that's an incredible... The, the sponsor didn't, know, no. But that's an incredible yeah, tale, but it's, it, it's of its time, yeah, you know. On, on the coach going the match, Clough made them all have a drink. <laughs> But then you see other sports and rugby players, and I mean, Monty, Monty Panasar last week, didn't he piss on a bouncer or something like that? They don't seem to get the same kind of, you know... The, the classic example of that is when England won the Ashes in 2005. Oh, Flintoff goes, oh, yeah. goes into Downing Street and pees in Downing Street Garden. If a footballer would have done that, there would have been a lynch mob. Yeah. You know, it's not good old Freddy's a lad, isn't he? And you know what? It doesn't matter. He, was, you know, he just had a few bevies. He was celebrating, and that, you know, I've I've got no big issues with it. Um, but you know, it's a, it's just just the hypocrisy. And what the hypocrisy is all built round is envy of the earning these huge amounts of money, and you know, people are wondering why these ignorant oiks are earning so much. Mm. Well, in most cases, they're not that ignorant, and they're earning so much because you people who envy them want to watch them. Absolutely. In terms of um, access or uh, the, the way access is had, um, I've, I've seen some things recently about um, you know the big TV broadcasters looking at trying to get changing room um, access again. I'll say that word mm. before or during a game. Can you can you see that happening with the money that's going into the game? It happens in other areas of you know you look at the United States of America. You know, where you started your career, we found out. Um, that it's access all areas there. Mm. There's an expectation from the broadcasters because they are spending hundreds of millions, billions, on the right to broadcast these matches, that they have the right to broadcast at any part of that game, including the changing rooms. They, you know, in, 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 in British football, in English football particularly, it's always been sacrosanct. Mm. I, I, I mean, I've, I've done a Super Bowl, and... Um, you know, it was a Brett Favre just won the Super Bowl for the first time, and ten minutes after the game ended, we were in the locker room talking to him. You know, it's like it, it, it just. But the, but the thing is, it works, and I'll tell you why it works and why football hasn't got onto it yet and hasn't realised. If you, it's a superficial access because you you bring people in and. It, you know, gives, it gives a sense of colour and all that, but they're not going to answer any any real questions. You know, it's a, you know, it's a, uh, you know, I mean, someone someone asked him. I always remember that. And I say, Brett, you know, it's a, uh, do you think your high school coach would be proud of you? And I'm like, cutting edge journalism, lad. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, well, if I was a football coach, you know what I'd do? I would put a player up in a press conference every day, after training every day, so that press could. Because the other thing is, most journalists are lazy, and if you give them something they can feed to the desk. 
well, they're not going to go scrambling around, you know, they're, they're going to concentrate on that. And I, what I would do is I would encourage media access and I would encourage people to talk to them. And that way, you develop a culture, like in American football and baseball, where the players are more at ease in front of a mic or a mm. camera and they're less likely to say something that's a bit daft. It is different, though, isn't it? It's a different structure because what you've got in the States is a franchise structure. Mm. So the NFL will take a view on the NFL mm. in its totality and they will have a brand value for the league. So that includes access all areas, that includes players being, or even superficially, um, because, you know, on the eve of the Super Bowl, they all line up the players and press from around the world, queue up to interview the particular players, so that goes back, all sorts of stuff. But that's a brand, that's NFL. It's really quite interesting, that American model. There's no relegation as such. Mm. Um, it's the draft system, we all know that. Very different here in the United Kingdom in terms of getting a sport to university. Look at one thing, so... BT and Sky, even on radio, we used to have these contracts. It used to say, you will get X and Y as a right. Really? Tell that to Alex Ferguson. Right. If he's not in the mood to talk to you, he's not going to talk to you, etc. You know, and, and, but I think the first club that realises how they can project themselves through better, <gasps> better media... Uh, will make a massive, massive success of it. And I think one, one of the things that Man City are doing is they're, they're pretty aware of that. Their site is very social media friendly. Um, I mean, I know it gets mocked on some forums for having their priorities in the wrong place, but Man City do a very slick job on Facebook and Twitter, I think. They do, and they've got a whole team dedicated to that and moving that forward because that's part of the way you communicate now. It's, it's not instead of everything. I think this is, this is the other thing that I would say to people who are frightened of social media. Mm. It's not instead of everything. It's as well as everything. So it's not instead of great journalism. It's there as well as. It's another tool. It's another methodology. It's another platform. Uh, it'll be doesn't mean that everything else disappears. It'll be interesting to see how United do this season as well because it seems now that Fergie's gone, they've opened up the Twitter, they've opened up the Facebook to more kind of interaction. Um, and I think so far it's been quite standard. Um, and, and then the, you know, the new era... Of openness, they didn't have a press conference before the community shield. <laughs> well, very true. So, um, as a final word, then, if you could change one th one thing about the way football and the media work together, what would it be? God, <laughs> more journalists on TV programs, I'd say, in the same way that Sky do it. Um, I just think it offers a different kind of analysis, um, as in you, you could have, say, Gary Neville and Jonathan Wilson, let's say, stuck together in the studio. I think it would be an interesting, different approach to analysing the game, which could be quite interesting to people, really. Will there be a time when bloggers appear in that same kind of...? If, if they're good enough. I mean, I guess Michael Cox is an example of that already happening. And um, there was um, uh, Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Draft was on Newsnight last night. Hmm. Yeah. So it's a, I, what, what I'd do is I... What I'd change is I'd, I'd change the whole mindset, the way of thinking. I would... Um, I, if, if I was working in football, I'd, I'd embrace, I'd embrace the, the getting the message over to everyone and get because you know what, whether it's on a website or whether it's in a newspaper, this is free publicity. People are giving you free publicity. Companies pay massive amounts in advertising to get that space, to get that airtime, you know, and all that. Get it, grab it. Get, you know, get it before United do it. Get it before Liverpool do it. Get it before City do it. You make yourself the most accessible club in the country and people will hear more about you, people will be interested in you and you know what, you might even pick up some supporters. Yeah, um, stop thinking of the press, stop thinking of social media, stop thinking of communication as the enemy. Mm -hmm. It's seen very often as the enemy and needs to be stopped. I think that is changing. I think um, if you can embrace it, if you can have a debate, even if it's a debate that's uncomfortable, that's the same in any relationship, isn't it? If you've got a relationship with people who are... But unlike any other brand, right, football, you're having a discussion with customers who are absolutely, utterly emotionally attached to the subject they're talking about. Not talking about a new car or a tin of beans. There's something they're really emotional about. Allowing people to have a platform within the, your garden wall over the dinner table with you as a football club, I think will only endear and increase that emotional detachment as opposed to it doing any damage, to be honest. And I think clubs are getting to grips with that, slowly but surely. And I can see that dialogue increasing as, as the years go on. You know, a club's got to have a culture. It's, it's got to have a meaning to people. And if they, if they lose that in pursuit of cash, if they lose that by being too insular, then they'll lose, they'll, they'll lose 
they'll lose fans, they'll lose people who can connect with them, who, who can believe in them. And you know what? If you can't believe in a football club, if you can't, if you can't build that ties of loyalty, that the, the, you know, sort of those ties of faith, the feel, the feeling that means something that's part of your identity, then it's just going to die. So Coventry, if they lose that mm. that sense of being of the city of Coventry, they'll die. Uh, you know, the whole Tigers. What does that mean to a whole city fan? For years, probably, you know, it, it, it just diminishes the whole sense of identity, and that's the mistake football clubs often make because they think, you know, they want to turn that say into a pop music business, into a into a business where things, you know, you 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 want to get new customers. You shouldn't. What you what you need to do is get fans, and you need to make those fans tied to the club for life. And not enough clubs now to do that. If, if you're a successful club winning trophies. Um, is that really a, a, a big issue for them? Because they're going to pick up people that want to be involved in for, the, for the glory and the success rather than any culture that might be there. Well, it's not. But there will come a time, there will come a time when they won't win. Mm. It happens to everyone. Mm. And there will come a time when this bubble that we're living in football bursts and then they're going to need people who have more than that trophy attachments. Absolutely. Well, maybe, maybe it's when It's people... bad business as well, I would yeah. say. Mm. It's bad business to lose that. Because mm. actually, if you go to Anfield, if you go to... A, you know, Anfield is um, a lot of football clubs are special, but it was just, just because Tony's here going to Anfield. I'm not a Liverpool fan. I'm mm. not from Liverpool, but you feel it. You just feel there is something there that that is, is human, that's passionate, that's beyond business, beyond that. But actually, is good for business perversely mm. because that atmosphere generates uh, that interest. That you know what happens on the pitch, the debate, the discussion is fueled by people's visceral emotion about what they're talking about. If, we, if we're having a chat about baked beans, it's not quite the same. And there's the perfect example. What, what, what made Liverpool so attractive was the cop, that scouse heartbeat. People come from all over the world to experience and see it. You price out the local fans, you, you chase the, the, the day trip, you go into live away at Wales and buy you know, two bagfuls of stuff where, where the Scousers won't buy a thing. You know, <laughs> then, but, but you drive the Scousers out, the Scouser goes, the day trip is coming, they go, well, this isn't great, is it? And so what you're doing, you're building in your own destruction if you don't keep that sense of what a club's all about. Well, I think this is, this is one that we could keep going and going yeah. on, but... Um, Still haven't had my pint yet. Yeah, but... yeah, I'm conscious the bar's open and Moz is thirsty. So uh, thank you, Greg, Moz and Tony, for your uh, your time and thoughts. And uh, thank you for listening. Um, as always, if you've got any feedback or questions, um, you know, feel free to, to, to tweet us using the hashtag The Home Room.